to a episode. <laughs> I don't know what number we're on anymore. We're getting that high up in numbers. I don't remember. Uh, this is the newest episode of From Red to Black, a Homicide Life on the Street podcast. This is Joe. I'm Daniel. Uh, we're going to be talking about an episode called A Many Splendored Thing. It originally aired Friday, 10 p.m., January 27th, 1994, on NBC. It was written by No Ben, and the story editor was Tom Fontana. A brief synopsis is uh, <clears throat> Bo Lander SK if they'll double date. Uh, he and uh, his date with her and Linda uh, try to take the pressure off his first date. And then there's a slain phone sex operator who's clutching a note naming her boss's per perpetrator and Bayless and Pendleton handle that case. Uh, Munch has a lot of trouble dealing with Bolander's happiness. And meanwhile, Lewis and Cressetti investigate and find a man with a pen fetish. <laughs> There's like, when you when you put it that way, this was like a pretty wild episode. Yeah. In terms of like story, like how many stories were going on um, and the way they're kind of using our, our regular cast of characters. Um but you were saying at the end of it, like, it kind of felt like a pretty tame... Didn't it? Yeah. In right? a weird way? Given all those, like, yeah. crazy uh, story elements, yeah. yeah I think it's weird. Um, but uh, we'll go... Let's go through it. I, I think the... Um, one of the two major stories in this episode, and I think maybe the most interesting uh, story, um, is this uh, Munch and Bolander kind of plot. So it starts with... The episode starts with them... Um, and Munch revealing that he's broken up with Felicia, the character we've gotten to know over the last couple episodes. Right. Um, their kind of strange relationship that they have has uh, ended, at least for now. Um, I don't remember if it's already been established or if it's just from watching the show before, but I, always, I mean, you kind of get the sense that their relationship is pretty on again, off again. Yes, it's going to happen a lot. Yeah. Um, and so they come upon this homeless couple... Uh, who are, they're both dead, they're holding hands, <laughs> they're facing east, yeah. Bolander points out, and um, there's like uh, prescription pill bottles around, so they're thinking yeah. it's suicide. suicide. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we're, uh, we also get a sense that Bolander's kind of like playing against Munch a little bit, so Munch is kind of like despondent, out of love, and Bolander's kind of like, Becomes this like sunny character in yeah, this episode. Yeah, he is acting weird. Yeah, and uh, so that's the the cold open is just kind of that scene, which uh, springboards into Bolander running up to Kay, and it sounds like he's like propositioning her. The way yeah, he's he can't like, he can't really get it out the right way. Yeah, he's trying to get her and Danvers to go to dinner because he's got um, a double date. Yeah, he's got a hot date, and um, wants him there to kind of like you know take the edge off and. Um, you know, make things easy for him. Um, and that's... When we left off, I think the last episode, I, I was talking about how I didn't know if they were... Uh, his relationship that he had sparked up with this waitress who played the violin, I didn't know if that was just plutonic or if they were actually getting involved with one another. Right. And I, I kind of liked the idea that it was just them playing music together and that was it. But we find out later in the episode, that's who he's dating now. Right. 
this 26-year-old waitress. Um, uh, we, I guess that information is revealed a little bit later in the episode. But um, uh, so Munch uh, finds out that Bolander has asked Kay out to dinner. And he's not happy about it. Yeah, he's like super annoyed. By the way, before then, he utters a great line. I don't know in response to what. This is Munch. He said, Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, by the way, had his good points. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line. Yeah. Um, yeah, like total... Uh, this is a very Munch-centric episode. Oh, yeah, and definitely. He's like, he is like the best version of Munch, too, in this episode. Um, so... Yeah, he's like, uh, that That kind of messes with his head. So we get a sense that, like, right, he's probably a little broken up about his breakup with Felicia. Felicia. But this, just the fact that Bolander is successful in these ways that uh, Munch is currently not successful, he's it's like really gotten under his skin. It's really bothering him. Yeah. So he talks to G. Uh, I guess Giordello's just trying to get the paperwork on this couple from... And it seems like it's a pretty slam-dunk, open-shut... Easy shut. case. Yeah. Um, I guess it's not even a homicide at right. that point. Right, uh, But he wants the paperwork just to, like, close the file. And Munch, like, in the face of his boss telling him this, is, like, having a totally different conversation. None of this is landing to him. And he's just complaining about how happy Bolander is. And G, it just all goes over G's head, because at the end he's just like, just get me the report. Yeah. I really don't care. Yeah. Um, well, he says, uh, <laughs> I, I wrote that, I, my, I was working furiously with notes uh, during that scene. It was pretty great. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the second best scene in this episode. Um, m- more on that later. But he, uh, Munch asks Giardello, order him to be miserable again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, G uh, calls back the sensitivity training that yes. they had a couple episodes ago. And that this, like, kind of is responsible for this. This could be it. And he thought it would affect... He mentions Bayless, by the way. Yeah. Or Munch, even. He goes, I didn't think it would affect the big man. Yeah. Um, But that conversation ends with him saying, all right, send the big man in here. He's got to talk to him. Um, And uh, Munch giving G an ultimatum, if you don't sort this out, I'm not giving you the paperwork on this this couple that's done. crazy. Totally insane. Ridiculous. But uh, in line with the character of John Munch. Um, so the G, we follow up that conversation with G talking to Bolander. They're up on the roof. Um, and I guess, how would you describe the, this conversation? It's like a status shift or something, right? Like, To me, it all gets turned around. Yeah, and Bowlander's kind of lecturing him about get on with your life after your wife dying, start dating, and G never says anything to him about you know act more normal or what are you doing. Yeah, it's it's totally flipped the other way. Yeah, it's like it's like the conversation has switched from one to the other. Yeah. Yeah, weird. yeah, like he went up there with the explicit goal to, you know, achieve this, uh, some kind of action from Bolander. And, and it doesn't happen. Yeah, 
uh, not only does it happen, the like total opposite happens. Right, right. He gives and, him stuff to do. And like Stanley is like really going hard at him. Yes. Like, saying that he's comfortable being miserable and that he's like what two timing those women. He has two girlfriends that he sees on Thursdays and on Sundays or whatever. <laughs> so like really uh, in a in a way that is like potentially mean, like being mean to him. Um, but he really uh I guess states his case well because at the end of the conversation, G is like, "All right, man, you do what you gotta." Right. Uh, and it's in that conversation that we find out that his girlfriend is twenty six years old. Right. Which I don't. I don't think we know how old Bolander is. But but you know he's got to <laughs> be fifty. <laughs> yeah, he's nowhere near nowhere near twenty six. Um, but uh, yeah, so he kind of like um, yeah, gets one over on G a little, uh, and G is. Left kind of scratching his head at the end of the conversation. Um, I don't think we see them again until they're out to dinner. I agree. So they're out to eat. It's Danvers. It's Kay. It's Linda. Yes. And Stanley. Stanley. And uh, it seems to be going well. <laughs> they do yeah. that. They do that crazy, really crazy shot as this show does. Where it's just circling around the table over and over again as they're kind of having their conversation and talking. Um, and then who comes in? You see Munch. <laughs> like in the background. And you just, you just know it's not going to be good. Yeah. Um, yeah, Munch comes over and just like... And by the way, how does he find out where they are? Who knows? No idea. He's, He's a detective. Good detective. Good detective work. Um, yeah, so he... Uh, what what is his like? He's there for a specific reason in the beginning. He wants sign to sign the reports on the paperwork. Yeah, and uh, but you know that's just the pretext, right? Because Linda's the one who offers, "Hey, why don't you sit down?" Right, and Stanley's like, "No, come on, we're gonna leave. <laughs> no one wants him there." Yeah, but he does. He plops down, and then uh, they cut away, uh, cover some other scenes, and when they come back, the. I thought the funniest thing about this scene is all the wait staff that is standing around them. Did you notice them? They're all standing there with their arms folded, like annoyed, as Munch is just like holding court, court. on this like doom and gloom. There is no love, uh, you know. Just it's all it's all negative, and I mean, he does such a good job at it that he just ruins Kay's evening totally. He doesn't even want to go home with Danvers. Danvers is mad and says, thanks a lot, you jerk. Yeah. <laughs> the only one that's not affected is Linda. Yeah, right. She really doesn't She's immune. buy into, she's immune to Munch. <laughs> um, yeah, and that would follow through throughout the episode. But it, it's sort of like, it sort of mirrors that same like shift from the conversation with G and Bolander. Right, where you kind of like... Uh, you have this character that goes in and like totally just decimates the perspective of everyone else. Yeah. Uh, everyone that they're talking to. Until finally Bolander shuts him down and says, if you don't stop talking, I'm going to gut you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, so they, the three of them, with M- Munch in tow, the third wheel, they go to, it's Fort McHenry? Fort McHenry. And um, they're walking around, and, and I think that's where... It's at that point that Munch kind of like calls Linda out. Like Linda's telling him, you're wrong about love. And that she tells a story about her grandparents who met at Fort McHenry. Right. And how it was against In World War I. Right. Yeah. 
and you know how how love exists and it's an important thing and munch kind of like he's like i'm a homicide detective i'm not surprised i'm not at anything yeah right and then with that fireworks go off which surprises (laughs) right um and again she treats munch differently she doesn't know him like you know Kay or even danvers so she's immune in the way but she just looks at him for what he is and she doesn't get sucked into it yeah 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 maybe not being uh that aware of like his whole mystique helps her uh, yeah in yeah that, that respect that you know he's yeah, because if you'd never met that guy before, you'd be like, man, this guy is, like, really depressed. Just a weird dude. Um, yeah. So, they, uh, uh, and it looks, uh, when they have their conversation, the fireworks go off. Munch is, is literally proven wrong with his assertion mm-hmm. that he's never surprised right. by anything. And then, uh, Bolander comes and catches up, and, like, Munch kind of, like, waves the flag. He's like, yeah, all right. Yep. Um... And uh, and takes off. Um, weird. I mean, this story absolutely falls in line with the the title of the episode. Love is a many splendored right. thing. It doesn't say love. It just says many splendored thing. Yeah. Um, but clearly, it's love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, and I, again, I think like we are getting a real great uh, munch in this episode. This is like. Quintessential. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's really like hitting his notes. And um <laughs> I was thinking in that in that scene at Fort McHenry, just how like how stilted sometimes his delivery is. Like it's so unnatural. But for some reason, because of just how like philosophical that character gets, it works. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, I don't need him to sound conversational at all. Um yeah, he doesn't talk like a real person does. Yeah. And it's I, like he's never listening to anything. Yeah. It's yeah. just he just talks. Or, and like, almost like he, he doesn't care what anyone else, how right. anyone responds to him. Right, like, right. Um, yeah, and uh, like Bolander, I think kind of like makes out okay in this episode. Like, even though he's doing something that is like, you know, would like raise a couple red flags uh, and might might come across as like a little odd, like pretty much convinces everyone. True. Yeah, that True. it's that it's cool. Um, and I guess it remains to be seen what happens with his relationship right. with Linda. Um, but knowing Bo, uh, Bolander's track record, not it'll be short lived. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um. So that I guess leads us to our next like big story here. Um, maybe the B plot to this episode, um, and sometimes fighting for A, which is Bayless and Pembleton catch this case, which I thought was really a good, good case. Yeah, yeah, and that's that. I think leads to the best uh, scene in this episode, and really one of the best scenes I think in the season that or in the in the show so far. But um, it's a strangled victim, uh, and they meet with the neighbors. One thing I was I was saying before, we right when we stopped the episode, this episode had like the most superfluous cast. I don't mean that in a negative way, but most non homicide detective. 
I think that we've seen so far. Like every scene, it seemed like you were meeting a new character. There was a new, yeah. um, a new personality that kind of like weaved into the story. So they meet with these neighbors, and this storyline also felt kind of like Law and Ordery, in that like I feel like I called it f- from the beginning. You know, like I knew who the killer was. Okay, I didn't, but yeah, I I know what you're saying. Yeah, it it seemed like it was like you're kind of like going through the. All right, you know you're going to be introduced to the killer at some point, right, so right. who is it going to be? Right. Um, and you don't have a lot of choices. So. Yeah, so she, so they find this strangle, strangled woman. She's holding a piece of paper that says, Ed did it. And uh, they're interviewing the, the neighbors, the couple next door. Uh, the woman had a key because they checked up on each other. And um, so they go, uh, they're starting to find out a little bit more about this victim. Um, she worked at like a leather store, so they go there and you find it's kind of like a like a kink, like, right? A little kinky. Yeah, they they sell like leather stuff, not just leather jackets. They do right. all sorts of stuff, and um, it's there they learn from her boss there that she had another boss, Ed, this guy Ed, at a place where she worked at, at a phone sex line. Another job. Yeah. So they go there, and I think it's pretty early on that you get a sense that um, this is like, like Bayless is totally uncomfortable. I was going to say, Tim is, and I noticed Frank watching him, because Frank is like slightly, never says anything, but you can tell he's like, man, Tim is really reacting to this whole thing very over the top. Right. He's not holding back. Yeah. Which we know as homicide detectives, right? Nothing bothers them. This really... I mean, he's angry. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's just, you know, this is immoral. This is wrong. Have we seen anyone get, like, emotional over a case? No. For the most part, no. I mean, I guess Tim Uh, Tim and Adina. Right, right. But I don't think in this way, like, where he's, like, just has such a visceral reaction. Yeah. To these people and the things that they're saying, um, and you can see at like as we get deeper into understanding who this character was and what they were doing, it's just like getting worse and right. worse for him. Um, so they go to the uh, they meet this guy Ed at the the phone sex line and their phone sex place and like again that's this a was, great scene yeah right uh-huh. there was like four new four people who were working the phones and like uh, a, a real interesting. I guess this is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna assume that the writers of Homicide did their homework and did our homework for us. That like, there's. Uh, they can only say so much on those phones. Like they can't get without getting into trouble. I yeah, guess. vulgar or whatever. Right. So they. He he talks about how they read off of a script and how the script is like basically like a PG script. Right. That just is like very suggestive. Um, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, and uh, so this Ed. You know, in a, in a typical uh, typical story, maybe you would think that it's a shut and open and shut case where they found Ed. Um, Ed is able to immediately prove that it's not her writing. Right, which was good for yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like he was he was like really emotionally affected by her dying. Yeah. yeah. In the beginning. And then it ends with him just saying, like... I, I, got, I got a couple of shifts. Yeah, right, right. Uh, maybe that's all he cared about. Um, 
so uh, they go. They, I guess they go back. To, or no, he tells her about that um, that bar, the yes. weird sex bar that yeah. she hangs out yep. at. And um, I shouldn't say weird sex bar. Mm-hmm. Normal sex bar. Right. If you're into that thing, right. I don't, won't yucky them. Um, but uh, so they go there and they interrogate some people who knew her. And uh, the guy kind of says, like, you're, like, he's into mm-hmm. domination or whatever. And he's like, you're doing what what we do here, only we're, we're here. It's I'm role-playing. Yeah. Right. You're doing it for real. Right. Yeah, you right. get a badge, and so you right. can actually, like, right. be That was kind of, and you know what? Tim backed off a little. Yeah. Right. It was like, hmm. And that, that I think, too, is, like... He, he's seeing a different Tim Bayless than we've ever seen before. And, and again, Frank is very quiet. Yeah. Kind of letting this all play out. That was a neat cut where Bayless has this guy up against the wall. So uncharacteristic of Tim Bayless uh, in this in the show so far, but in this episode makes sense. Has this guy like pressed up against the wall and uh, they cut to, at the end of the conversation... To Frank and the woman that this guy was with, just like standing there, Frank is just smoking a cigarette, like watching this all unfold. Right. Um, so, uh, I guess next is when they get their big break. Right. Is in the case where they How go about the get... autopsy. What is that? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, we we've seen this guy before, the coroner. Oh yeah, he's the uh, right. I, I he Shire. has he might be he. In a show where the casting is like pitch perfect, <laughs> right. he might be the best. Guy. Right. Like that guy is totally a coroner. Yep. Um, yeah. So he uh, uh, explains to them that uh, she was strangled, but it doesn't look like she was raped. It doesn't look like it was right. forced. Um, she doesn't have any other markings or anything like that. So it looks like it was you know consensual that went wrong. Um, and so. They, I remember. Oh, so this is the scene. Um, I think where Tim and Frank are in the car, and they're sort of talking about. You know, Tim is like, "Are you not like disgusted by this? Are you not like totally uncomfortable by the these like deviants that we're seeing right. uh, in this case?" And Frank is sort of like, "No, like right. it, it, how you would expect a really great." homicide detective to be um and yeah Tim is sort of like uh like you don't because I'm I'm not a killer you're saying I can't track a killer and because I'm not a creep or whatever and it's funny because a lot of the things he says and this is a major spoiler alert probably for those of you who haven't seen some of the things he mentions it's revealed that they are true about him. Right. We won't tell you which ones today. Yeah. But there are things he says, and it's really not true. And that is probably the reason he is overreacting. Right. Yeah. So we don't know that. But clearly we touched a nerve. Yeah. Yeah. That he's like maybe kind of... Uh, he's He has this part side of him maybe that... Is untapped. Right, that we don't see. Yeah. Yeah, that maybe he doesn't even see. He doesn't even get. And he's feeling some kind of friction there. And um, this scene, I I just thought was so great. The two of them kind of going back and forth. Um, They're, uh, like, so many. Again, my pen was working so hard here. 
Um, when he says, uh, Frank says, you're either a moron or you're boring. Right. Uh, that was such like a, I thought a real pointed dart uh, from him in that moment. Um, and uh, virtue isn't virtue unless it slams up against vice. Hmm. Um, he he says, also he touches on a theme of a great Star Trek episode when Kirk is split into two, a good and bad. And how McCoy says, Dr. McCoy, you need your evil side to balance your good side. That there's actually good things that come from the evil side. And it was like a little bit of that, that it's not wrong to have that bad side, Tim. Right. And, and I think he's warning Tim against totally suppressing it. Yeah. Because that's not going to be good. Right. Yeah. And that, I feel like, man, that could be its own Yeah. episode is just kind of on that and how that manifests itself in this series and beyond. Um, but I, I feel like that's some really incredible writing uh, in that scene. And they're really tackling some real heady stuff. But they do it in a real natural way that it doesn't feel forced. It right. doesn't feel like it's too out of left field. Right. Um, yeah, I just wrote "damn Frank" in my notes here because uh, it was it was really tremendous. And it's quintessential homicide. The most important stuff gets said in the car. Right. Yeah, they're just driving around, just the two of them. Um, so um, they go back to the leather place, uh, and then. Um, they go from there back to the neighbor's house and they're all just kind of f- trying to figure out like, all right, they, they kind of know what happened now. They just have to figure out who. Right. And um, when they're at the neighbor's place, they find the coat. Right. This jacket that was purchased at the leather store. Right. Um, that it doesn't have its belt. The belt is missing. And it's the woman, uh, the neighbor of the deceased got it for her boyfriend. Correct. And so that's where they're... This seems like the big break, and then they're kind of following that through. Um, we get Jeremy in the box with Frank and Tim, and, again, Tim kind of just, like, boils over. Uh, they basically, like, get the confession. He says she was... He got home, she was there, called him in. They started fooling around or whatever. It was kind of like he was seduced in a way. Yeah, yeah. And then he just didn't know what he was doing. Right. Uh, Which Tim doesn't buy at all. Right, right. Um, and yeah, as, so as he's explaining this, and it, like you can almost like you can almost see how this person maybe didn't intend to do what they did, but was just the you know in way over his head, right? And something that he's never been been involved in before. But uh, like Tim just like loses it, starts screaming at him, is cutting him off, um, and yeah, he's he's just totally like lost his cool. Um, in this case. Agree, yeah. Um, Again, it really gets to him. Yeah. Uh, And he has no sympathy or, you know, it's just, you were wrong and that's it. Yeah. Um, So they get the confession from Jeremy and uh, this is really cool uh, shot where, well, we can talk about three things happen all in one shot. Like one straight shot, that we get three separate scenes towards the end of this episode, and the very end of it is Bayless writing the name from red to black, changing it over to a solved murder. Um, but then there's this little like, uh, almost like an afterthought at the end of the episode, 
um, afterthought, kind of like reflecting back on that storyline, where the lady from the leather store comes in and thanks him for what he did, yeah, solving the crime because she knows that if she were in that situation, people like him would right. be out Do there. Do the same thing for her, and he like can't understand that how she can be that rational about it, right? And still, how, how can she be involved in something that might lead to her death? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so she gives him this coat as a gift. And then he, like, goes out with the jacket to, like, seedy places. Right. And that's how it ends. Yeah. And you're just like, what's that about? <laughs> yeah. Because they really, I thought there was going to be more. And it just ends, like, you don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, some lady of the night, like, whispers in right. his ear. And then he's, like, talking to some pimps or whatever. And it's pretty weird. Yeah. Yeah, like just stops short, but uh, you know, of of saying anything, I think profound about it, just kind of like shows him in the element wearing this coat. And and the thing is, how did he go from being so angry to where he's at these places? Yeah, it's like, it, again, it's just, but that's what makes homicide homicide. It sort of reminded me of Taxi Driver in that way, like that character of like being so. Uh, disgusted by his surroundings and then like totally kind of outdoing uh, how disgusting it is like becoming you know a murderer basically I mean not that Tim Bayless is a murderer but um, I think uh, yeah that was a real weird a weird thing I wonder if they knew because we, we were you had hinted before about kind of the full character arc of Tim Bayless in the later seasons I wonder how far down the road they knew when they were writing this episode, if they knew that they were going to take him, take that character kind of strange places and, and do... Don't know. Yeah. I think the only thing I heard was that one of the goals was is that Tim and Frank would change roles by the end of the show in the sense that Tim was very by the book and for the rights of people and Frank was loosey-goosey and at the end, that changed. But I don't know if what you're saying was part of their plan for him. You almost think it had to be. Yeah. That they planted the seed and just put on side. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it would make sense. It would make sense. And I think the way that this episode ends is very telling about that. But I, I think, too, maybe this is just the part of the process. Like, you write this character kind of heading in that direction, well, you have to follow it. You know what I mean? Like, if they did this, and and maybe this is what uh, another show in less abled hands would do, is kind of, like, dip into this for an episode and then just write Tim back as right. a normal... But did they do this thing with any other character on the show? I say no. No. Right. No, definitely not. He's definitely a special character. Yeah. Bayless is an special character to this show yeah and i don't think he was intended to be but you think about the first episode with with adina watson the episodes like this he is he is very important to homicide yeah yeah um yeah i mean he's like the audience surrogate right he's yeah. the he's the one that we identify with because we're finding this stuff out as he's finding Good out point. a lot less now uh, at this point, we're kind of locked into the characters, but um, 
Yeah, I, I think saying he's a special character, absolutely. And probably a lot of fun for them to kind of sink their teeth into and write uh, and have, have them do all this stuff. Um, all right. That's really the two biggest stories here. Kind of had this like, like weird. It almost to me felt like a sketch, like a comedy sketch, um, even though it was a little bit darker than uh, comedy tends to be. But this little story with um, Cressetti and Lewis, <laughs> and the guy at the library. This very strange. Yeah. So a uh, guy is shot. Uh, at, they get a. Uh, they're at the library examining a corpse. A guy riddled with bullets. The guy who shot the guy who got shot. Yeah, right. The librarian gives this like. She's really, a riot. Yes, yeah, really circular. Like uh, she's she's trying to be like professional by the book, but she's like not. Really not effective she was at great. all. Great. Yeah, fantastic. Um, another one of those like weird one-off characters that we never just, see her again. Yeah, which was just terrific. Um, so she's explaining that uh, basically this person was shot over a pen, hmm. and uh, Crisetti and Lewis have this conversation where it's like, uh-huh. like no, they, uh-huh. there's no way that this could right. just it's be impossible. over a pen. Trying to figure out motives and who is this person, um, and they know his name. Right, because it's the library. Yes, so they, they know the victim's name and the uh, potential shooter's name. Yeah. Yes, so they uh, they run their records and they find out that he's been in the uh, in an asylum. <laughs> <laughs> and they kind of go over the, the preferred. It's so it's so funny <laughs> when they use all the euphemisms. Crisetti kept keeps correcting Meldrick, and then Meldrick says something like. He was in a loony bin. The nun and, was in a loony bin. And, and, and Crisetti says, yeah. 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 That was the funniest line. Yeah. They After don't... all of that, the nut was in a loony bin. He's like, yep. Yeah, they, they don't call them asylums anymore. They call them uh, whatever. Can... Mental health facilities. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was really was funny. In a loony bin. It's great. After Crisetti's just like, yep. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so that, uh, and. and... They, they were great together, I thought. For sure, for sure. That, that's I think that's why I, I, this felt like a comedy sketch to me so much was because it's so short and it's so funny. The yeah, scenes so, were very short. Yep. Uh, and kind of like a, a real nice palate cleanser with some of the other storylines that were going on. Uh, for sure the Bayless and Pembleton one. And I think it's, it's nice to have like a baseline reality, uh, something to bring us back down to normalcy when we're dealing with a character like Munch. So we have this kind of crop yeah. up where it just it just kind of feels like two human beings, you know. And, and by the way, when they go visit this guy's house, Mister Foreman, yeah, and the concierge utters her line, that's right from the producers, uh, the the Broadway musical and movie. Oh, uh, really? About yeah, my you know my husband used to be the concierge. Now I, we're on the concierge. It's word for word dialogue. Give you a little trivia about... Oh, uh, yeah, the... the I guess it's... <laughs> it was early on. Was it this murder? or One of the one of the murders in this episode is Chris Novoselic, who is the bass player of Nirvana. So we, we had said a couple episodes ago, Lane Staley was the guy from uh, Alice in Chains. This is another Seattle band. Because this happens a lot in this show. Yeah, probably times that have happened already that we haven't gotten. Cause right. Their bands are just too obscure, but... Um, yeah, Chris Novoselic from Nirvana. Um, so yeah, so they meet with the, uh, and and this woman is like almost like defending 
the guy who we think is the killer. Uh, she's like, oh, he's a nice man, pays his rent on time. She knows nothing about him. Yeah. Which is funny. Yeah. Um, and so they go up to his room. and Bizarre. Just like totally unexpected. So they're still at the point where they're not entirely sure if this, if this person could have murdered someone over a pen. Uh, they know that he has maybe some history with mental health issues. They go into his his apartment, and it is like Penn City. It's it. I was thinking the effort it must have taken to get all those pens in there. Yeah, getting a production. Can you imagine? It's like, like okay, here's what you're gonna do: string it thousands of pens <laughs> Put for a scene that's gonna scene. last two minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly impressive, shocking when they open the door. Did not expect to see that, and it's just pens adorning the walls. The there's uh, like um, artwork and frames, and just the frames just covered in pens. Uh, it's crazy, uh, and we get a sense like, oh yeah, this person probably could murder someone right. over They're a pen. Insane. Um, the real like surprise, the real interesting, I think, riddle uh, that they can't quite wrap their heads around is that the pen was left at the scene of the crime. Right, why didn't he take it? Right, so if he killed him, why wouldn't he take the pen? Um, so then they... Uh, uh, I guess that's what they find out in the next scene here. Uh, is, is the next scene of him on the roof the suspect? <laughs> How does that happen? Yeah. I miss really that. Really out of nowhere. Right? Uh, again, like, I, I pretty... This feels so comedic, it's really heightened from the next from the previous instance. Um, but I, I forget who who was it they were talking to. Who says that the this gentleman wouldn't steal the pen? He didn't want to steal the pen. Stealing is wrong. Right, right. So You're right. Somebody says that. Right. He, he murdered. He him. wouldn't take it. Yeah. But he left the pen there. Right. He murdered him because he wouldn't give him the pen. Right. And because he didn't. It might give have been the, the concierge. Yeah, it's yeah. but uh, so we get kind of like that that interesting logic of someone in this pen collector's uh, uh, state of mind. So yeah, then it cuts to him. They're talking to him, and he's on top of the building, and he says, "We don't really see how he gets there." It's like he was there to turn himself okay. in. He said, and, "Okay," uh, and then now he's gonna jump. And there's a crowd of people down below. And how does, how does, uh, what's his face? Um, Meldrick Lewis. Meldrick getting stopped to jump. He attracts him with a pen. With a pen. Pulls a Which pen Which was out. an important pen at the time to him. Yeah. He says, well, he, yeah, he says what his grandmother gave him yeah. that pen yeah. before she died. Which is like, what a fortuitous thing for him to have uh, in right. this episode. Um, he never mentioned a pen before. But uh, um, he's talking to Corsetti about it, and it's a nice-looking pen. It's gold, sp- sparkly. And um, so when they're on the roof, he shows it to the guy. The guy reaches for it, and he pulls Grabs it off. Him. Yeah. Um, weird. What a weird scene. And and even how about the scene later with Bo Felton with the pen? Yeah. Where where Bo Felton's pen runs out of ink, and. Clark Johnson gives him his pen. And it's almost like he's disgusted that he ever liked this pen because of what this guy did with his like for the pen. Yeah. 
So it's like Meldrick gives him the pen. Yeah, he like lo- he just likes it today, but who knows what this could Tomorrow lead to. Tomorrow bring. Yeah, right. So he has to get rid of it. That was really weird. Yeah, what a weird story. What yeah, a, the whole thing was weird. Yeah, weird, weird episode. Um, and then, yeah, I guess that's the end of that, that story, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's, um, Lewis is talking to Giardella, and this is the scene that I mentioned before where three things kind of happen all at once. He's talking to him about the, the pen guy, the, the guy on the roof, and he's like, how could someone care about a pen that much? How could much? they love the pen? And then G is like, well, how could anyone love a person or, or a, a car. car that much, right? And it, and it sort of like makes sense to us in a way, and we're like, oh yeah, <laughs> I, I get that. Um, no cuts in the scene. Uh, he walks over and passes Bo Felton, who's running with a pen that's running out of ink. So we, we get that exchange where right. he gives him the pen. Right. And then he walks to his desk, and as he's walking to his desk, Bayless gets up and goes over and changes the name of the woman that died. Right, from red to black. It is like maybe about a, I, I want to say it was a minute long, of just straight one shot, no edits. Really clever, uh, well done, um, and well acted. I, again, this is, it, that is a, a sort of thing that I don't think you see very much from TV shows. Agree. Um, that takes real acting chops to be able to pull it off. Um, so yeah, that's our that's our storylines. Um, so who do you think was the kind of the hero of the episode? Man, what a tough one. There are so many different levels here of who I think a hero is. I think it's really tough to say that Tim Bayless is a hero here um, because he loses his cool so much and because he's like kind of like... Yeah, I would definitely not pick him. But I feel like he's like the most interesting in this episode. I agree. Um, like Munch, I think, has a great episode. This is quintessential yeah. John Munch. I really love, but uh, he loses. He's a, right. He totally right. loses in right. the end. Um, you know. It's a hard one for this episode. This There's a real... Thread to this episode of kind of turning ideas upside down, upending ideas. You could say Bowlander. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, he comes across has a successful. I mean, his his date is ruined. Right. The but, date but wasn't successful. She doesn't think so. That's right. That's right. They they seem to be enjoying right? each other's company so, at the fireworks. Um, so, how would you pick the the rotten person for the episode? Yeah. There's, there could be so many. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say my winner here is Frank. Frank only because that scene in the car I love so much. Yeah. So I'll give it to Frank. I'll say my loser is Bo Felton. Had like two lines in the whole thing. <laughs> where where was Bo uh, for this? Um, yeah, that's my. Best. And I'll tell you, I'm gonna miss John Polito. This was his last for, yeah episode. And he really added a lot to the show. Yeah, he for was sure. different character than the others, and uh, I'm gonna miss him. I I never liked the character that much, but this viewing of it has turned me around on him. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. He's so uh, so weird. Uh, it, like him and Munch, kind of are like you almost see them as like cousin characters almost, in that they're like so out of the normal realm of conversation, you know, like they're always doing something strange. And, and um, yet Meldrick and him have a tremendous chemistry 
they're really good. They're yeah. like a comedic duo. Right, right. It's so fun to watch the two of them. Uh, yeah, that's a great point. This is was John Polito's last episode, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot yeah. in the next uh, episode. Maybe not. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, Joe, you your winners and losers. I, I, I would go along with you. Yeah. I, I would, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could go with a couple of different ways, but I, that sounds yeah. okay. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe Tim is a loser too. Yeah, but just because he's, you know, yeah. Anyway, um, so Joe, how do people get in touch with us if they want to make comments? So you can email us from red to black at gmail dot com. Is it from red to black pod at gmail dot com? I think it's red to black pod. Yeah, and then uh, on Twitter at red to black pod. Um, hit us up there. Give us a follow. Re- please review, rate it. You hear it at the end of every podcast. Yeah. It really does mean something. Uh, and we love hearing from you guys. So Right. See you next time. Yes. Uh, there's another episode gone from red to black.